Renaissance episode 24. I swear to God, I was doing my research this week and I read that. I read that his great epic poem was called Africa and I laughed and went, You fucking troll, Petrarch. <clears throat> what a fucking troll. He so made us sing this song. <laughs> what a classic. We cannot escape. No. We don't want to, yeah. Um, welcome back. So as we talked about in our last episode, um, Petrarch, the father of the Renaissance, uh, went to Rome for the first time in 1337. This is after he climbed the mountain. He went to Rome. He was like, fuck me. This place is awesome. Um, and what it needs. Yeah. What it needs is a great new epic poem, and I'm the man to write that poem which he began in 1338. It was a poem about Scipio Africanus and the Second Punic War, and the name of that poem was Africa. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I just want to mention that, like you said, he goes back to... um, uh, the clues he gets nice and, and he calms down. There's there's not a lot of noise going on there, so he's able to meditate. And he writes to a friend, "Would that you would you could know with what delight I wander free and alone among the mountains, forests, and streams." So he's got. I think he's got uh, some a brook nearby where he's fishing. He has two gardens. He has one dog, two servants, and like you said, he com- he devotes himself and he writes and he writes and he writes. And because he removed himself. He was able to uh, to knock this thing out and and uh, impress a lot of people with it. Well, knock it out, but it was still unfinished Un- at the time of his death. Right. So knock he didn't out the first knock it four. out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now he tries to hide hide the fact that he's working on this. He doesn't want people to get too excited. He is pretty much the most famous man in the world at this juncture. Yeah. Um, everyone knows him or knows who he is and particularly the elite kings and popes and cardinals and the like, they want to be his friend. Um, he's a celebrity. He's like the first celebrity that's not a king or a pope, really. Mm -hmm. He's an artistic celebrity, which again is one of the reasons why he's considered the father of the Renaissance. Now, Dante was also famous before Mm -hmm. him. But again, Dante was talking more about religious stuff, um, sort of pre-Renaissance. Petrarch's really talking about heroic achievements and these sorts of things, not a descent into hell. The the heroism of Scipio and the glory of ancient Rome. So word uh, starts to spread quickly that he's working on Africa 
And eventually word uh, of this reaches the court of King Robert of Naples, who's a guy who was considered at the time to be fairly enlightened and studious. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gives Petrarch like some kind of uh, 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 income for him to live on while he's working on Africa. He becomes his patron. Right. Did you read much about <clears throat> Robert of Naples, a.k.a. Robert the Wise? I, I did do some um, some backstory on Robert the Wise. I did find it interesting, and we can go into this later, but I do not know what to agree that he's not just writing this and hoping for glory. From what I was able to gather, even though he's already famous, there was some Barry and Stan working behind the scenes to get accolades for his work. But uh, we, we can go into that later. But um, let's see, Robert the Wise, he was the grandson of Charles, Count of Provence, the House of Anjou, who ruled south of the Papal States. Papal States. His, his son, Charles II, lost Sicily, to the house of Aragon, and now comes the grandson, Robert, Robert the Wise. He couldn't get Sicily back, but he was a decent ruler. He was a major, a major patron of the literature and art. And because of the money he has, he's able to throw a lot of parties. There have jousting contests. There's plenty of loose morals. Everybody's having affairs. The poets there have plenty of experience to write from. Naples does help Giovanni Boccaccio, which we'll probably go into later. But the point is that this is a pretty impressive uh, kingdom. They have lots of money. Uh, they're not doing some things right, but they are spending a lot of money on art and they are he's a big patron of many different people including Petrarch. Yeah. He was known as a generous patron of the art, a cultured man. Uh, Boccaccio said he was unique among the kings of our day, a friend of knowledge and virtue. Nice. So, um yeah, he sort of invites Petrarch to come to Naples, uh, offers to sort of give him a stipend, I guess. Um, to keep working on Africa. Mm-hmm. And now, um, in 1341, on the exact same day, strangely, right. Petrarch gets what he's always wanted, um, Laura's pussy. No, yeah. uh, the other thing that the he's always thing. wanted. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the offer from both Paris and Rome... Wow to make him the their official poet laureate. Now, I had read that Padua and some other city-states had started the, up again the practice of putting a laurel wreath on a well-deserved bard. Rome gets into the act, Paris gets into the act, and again, boom, they both send this guy uh, an invitation to come to them to be their poet laureate. Yeah, they're both competing for the honour of... Right. This is how famous he is. They're yeah. competing to have him be crowned Poet Laureate in their city. Of course, because he's a big fan of Rome, he yeah. decides that that's where he's going to go. Before he goes there, though, he goes to Robert of Naples and asks Robert to examine him. Right, orally. Yeah. Uh <laughs> To make sure that he's worthy right. um, of it. I, I'm not exactly sure how one orally examines a poet. But say, can you say something that rhymes? Um, <laughs> Even here, No, this is like... Go ahead. <laughs> so, 
Roses are red, violets are blue. Finish that now. You have 10 seconds. <laughs> and it better rhyme. It was a Yeah, and it better be something I've never heard before. It was a 3-day oral examination to see if he was qualified mm. to receive the crown. So, somebody was sore and tired. Uh, but he's going to stop by King of Naples, bask in the glory before he continues on to Rome. You gave me a three-day oral examination <laughs> in Vegas, Ray, and I'm, I still remember it fondly. And I didn't even have to tie you down. And he, uh, uh, Petrarch dedicated Africa to King Robert right. of Naples. So anyway, yes, he goes to Rome and uh, uh, is crowned the poet laureate. Now, it's the last time someone had received a laurel wreath in Rome. It was the poet Statius, Statius, and he received it from Domitian in the first century. Fuck me. Long time ago. So 1,200 years (laughs) have passed since somebody had received the laurel wreath. Now... I just wanted to mention this real quick to set up Rome. So as we covered last time, Rome is not the great city it once was. The papacy has moved to Avignon in 1309. There are no foreign embassies that keep palaces there. It's even rare to have a cardinal in Rome at this point. The Christian shrines, like the classical colonnades, are all in disrepair. Shepherds are grazing their flocks on the seven hills. Beggars are on the street, and we saw plenty of their descendants while we were in Rome. Uh, the robbers or highwaymen are plying their trade on the roads in and out of the great city. Everybody is armed. People are being killed. People are being robbed. Nuns are being raped. But again, and uh, and I think we've touched on this, the old aristocratic families, the Colonia, the Orsini, the Salvelli, and the Anibaldi are all fighting each other politically and literally in the streets to control the city that, that rules Rome. The peasants are being ignored, except by the robbers, and papal authority is all but being ignored by everybody in the city. And even though all this is going on and it's gone to shit compared to to what it once was, the people of Rome, for whatever reason, still believe at this point that Rome could be, will be one day great again, that it will be the political and spiritual capital of the world. Um, they, they still have this hope. But for the people that are there that do have the means, they are spending a decent amount of time, excuse me, a, a decent amount of money on art. But it certainly is not the great city that it once was. Hmm. So they have this big ceremony for Petrarch on the Capitoline Hill, mm. where we were not yes. three weeks ago, four weeks ago, nice. Ray. We yeah. walked the very roads. Yeah. Petrarch was wearing a purple robe uh, <laughs> given to him by Robert, the King of Naples, to mm. wear for the ceremony. It's a huge deal. Senator, the elite, uh, what's left of it in Rome are all coming out for the ceremony. This is fucking huge. This yeah. is rock star celebration. These, this guy is Bono and he's getting <laughs> knighted by the Queen. And except there's never been anyone ever knighted by the Queen for 1200 years. Like, right. I can't deal. even begin right. to think about, like, what what's a modern. Uh, sort of example comparison for this. It would have to be the Nobel Peace Prize if it was given every 1,200 years. Or even that. Yeah. 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 Um, This is is a huge, huge deal. Right. Um, Petrarch, of course, gives a big speech about the value of poetry. He quotes from Virgil. He quotes from Cicero. After the ceremony on the Capitoline Hill... 
he marches with a big procession down to St. Peter's Basilica mm-hmm. where he takes the crown, the laurel crown that they gave him, as they gave us when we were right. in Rome. And then the asked city us to Rome, leave, right? Pre- presented <laughs> us with that for our contributions to podcasting. No, you did um, find a gold crown in the Colosseum. I did. Yeah. I did. I did. Um, I, it had a price tag on it. I sort of dropped a few hints to Tony. <laughs> Uh, and he gave us hats instead. Um, <laughs> Close so, enough. Close know. enough. Not really. Eh, he gave us something to put on our heads. Um, <laughs> thank you, not, Tony. Not, not the gold laurel wreaths, but yeah, thank you, you Tony. you got to start somewhere. He gave it's us a cigar. Thought that counts. Yeah, it's a thought. Yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, uh, and he, he takes the crown off his head and he and he leaves it in St. Peter's uh, Cathedral as a votive offering oh, to God. Yeah. It's probably worth noting that a preliminary form of the poem, and, and like we said, it was not finished, um, was at least a, a preliminary part uh, was completed in time for the, uh, for the coronation on April 8, 1341, Easter Sunday. In 1343, a provisionally finished copy, but it's still, I think it was like four out of nine books, something like that. So it still had a ways to go. But again, he had, he was so famous and he drummed up so much enthusiasm or so much enthusiasm was drummed up about it. It doesn't matter. He becomes the poet laureate. And he didn't let anyone see it at this stage because right. really, trust me, it's all awesome. it was is Roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> I think Scipio Africanus was fucking Kicked awesome. Yeah. How, How about, about you? you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, look, it needs some work. It's a first draft, Don't get right? Me wrong, but Genius it's a new age. doesn't happen overnight. It's a yeah. new age. Oh, trust me, people yeah. are going to love this fucking style in the future. You got no idea. Um, now he was mostly known at this stage, though, for the Canzonieri, the the love poems written in the vernacular. He finishes the majority of Africa that he did finish in Latin. <coughs> sorry, after this stage, um, his Secretum. Uh, is written after this stage, and his Lives of Illustrious Men. Now, he decided another way to glorify ancient Rome was to write his own version of Plutarch's Parallel Lives, um, where he wrote about Scipio and the Caesars Mm -hmm. and Brutus and Romulus and all these people. Um, Massive uh, book that he wrote. And do you know when that was translated into English for the first time? I'm no, I'm going to guess 1920s. I have no idea. It was first translated into English on the 5th of never. Oh my god. It's never been translated oh into god. English. That's sad. What the fuck are scholars doing? That is they're not translating, I can tell you that. What are we paying these lazy fucking cunts for is what I'm asking. Petrarch wrote this 700 years ago. Oh, my God. And no one has translated it into English. I'm embarrassed for them. A few years ago, it was translated into Italian. It's got the Latin on one side and the Italian on the other side. I'm like, you don't even need to be able to speak Latin. Just translate the Italian into English. How fucking hard. I could get... Get Google Translate to do it for you. <laughs> like, seriously. There. It's more than halfway translated to English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just finish it up. That might be that might be the next book I work on is oh, I'm just going to come out with Petrarch's Lives of Illustrious Men. I go, yes. yeah, like, it's Google Translate. It's, 
I'm not saying it's the best translation, but it's right. better than nothing. Yeah. It literally is better lazy, than not having a translated copy. Lazy fucking scholars, man. I don't know what they're doing with themselves. I was shocked. I went to, I go, okay, I better go read some of this. Right. No, do, no. does not exist. Son of a bitch. Now, again, we have to be honest, and even though we've already touched on this, I mean, Petrarch is seeking glory. He is seeking literary immortality. So he's well on his way. And now that he's the Pope Laureate, Poem Laureate, he now has a free pass to all the courts of the kings, all the successive popes. So as much traveling as he has done before. What? Brothels. Brothels. Yeah, free nightclubs. Just everywhere he went. He just, like I have with my Napoleon medal. He just had this thing on his head. He'd free pass into everywhere in right. Europe. He'd just yeah. go, and they go, hey, sorry, we're full. He'd go, look at the head. Yeah. And they go, holy just, shit, just are you? Point. Yep. That's yep. me. Don't even have That's to say me. my they name. Go, come, yeah. come on in, son. Here's, right. a, here's a baggie of cocaine. Yeah. His uh, two most beautiful hookers. Go for it. If, if I can mention King Robert of Naples again. So after King Robert's examination, he gives him a legal document that goes with a three-day oral wait for it, examination, that shows the ceremony was a medieval academic event. However, and this is important to Petrarch, he intends this, like you were saying earlier, to be a grand event to usher in a new age, the Renaissance, a time of rebirth of the Roman classical traditions of 1,200 years before. So the symbolism of the event among the loco ipso, the ruins of classical Rome, was a resurrection event a day to start bringing back the classical era. So again, this is this is intentional. This is his goal. This is um, a, 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 a I don't know if you want to call it a propaganda stunt or whatever, but he is clearly setting out to relaunch this new age. This is not an accident. This is not something that he stumbles across. This is his goal besides immortality. And. You know, I think it, it, one of the reasons this is important is it's because poetry is being valued. Mm-hmm. Um, poetry that's not about God. Right. It's not about Jesus. It's not about, you know, the afterlife. Poetry about love and about a general and about glory. Right. right. Is being valued again for the first time in such a manner. Mm. Uh, it's being celebrated with a huge bloody uh, 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 coronation event on the Capitoline Hill and in St. Peter's. This is a big deal. All of a sudden, you have little young artists around the world going, oh, okay, all right. I see uh, people care about art now for the first time in a long time. Um, that's not, you know, just about Jesus. Yeah. Of course, people didn't stop painting or writing or sculpting during the Middle Ages. It was just uh, all about Jesus, and it was pretty boring. Like it was, it it wasn't yeah. art for art's sake. And this is one thing that got drilled into us by all of our tour guides when we were in <laughs> right. Europe. Was when they were when they were making paintings in the Middle Ages of Jesus and 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 the and the apostles and all the and the popes and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't hey let's create a really fucking great work of art that touches people and moves people. It was like you know we need to put something up on that wall. It's looking a little bit blank. Uh, hey Bob, can you can you paint Jesus and Mary and put it up there for us? Yeah, fucking no worries, Thanks. mate. I'll have it done. I'll have it done next week. Right. It would. 
it was, you know, it was sort of storybooks. It was just trying to remind the, – the visual art was there to remind people of – so particularly when you have an illiterate population, oh. the only way to sort of tell them the story, apart from the priest getting up on Sunday and going, don't forget, Jesus was a good bloke. Uh, was to, to have paintings and statues around that people could go, oh, yeah, that Jesus bloke, I heard about him. Somebody told me about that. So that was the purpose of art in the Middle Ages was just to put something up on the walls so people wouldn't forget that they were Christians. Mm. It wasn't done to touch you, to move you, to to connect with you emotionally, to, to, to speak to the human condition. But this is why Petrarch... Uh, is really standing out here. He's really trying to move people and his efforts to do that are being celebrated at the highest levels. I'm pretty sure the, the general populace, the farmers, the, the the people scratching lives out of the dirt didn't give a fuck. Right. They're illiterate. They probably can't even read the vernacular, uh, let alone Latin. Mm-hmm. But in the elite circles, all of a sudden, they're starting to give a shit about this stuff now because of the the you know the way that Petrarch his his talents his qualities and his ability to sell it at the highest levels. Yeah. If I could just stop the storyline, the timeline for a second. Uh, I I found this interesting. So a little later he's going to write that after the age of 40 he never touched a woman in a carnal way. And as far as uh, philosophers, he didn't think very much of them. He said philosophers aim at only hair splitting subtle uh distinctions, quibbles of words. Uh, That philosophy can make uh, clever debaters, but rarely wise men. So he doesn't think think much of them. And as you said earlier, he quotes Cicero, he quotes Seneca, but he does... um, marvel at the piety of uh, Augustine. Um, so, so he has his beliefs and he, and he's doing this. Um, and again, it's a fine line with Christianity. He said, Christianity seemed to him to be an indisputable moral advance compared to paganism. And he hoped that men would be able to find it possible to be educated without ceasing to be Christians, because he knows what Christianity can do to you if you just, like you were saying, just focus on the afterlife and that kind of stuff. So he's trying to find that balance of, yeah, I believe in God, and hopefully I go to heaven and don't go to hell. But at the same time, I truly want to be educated and focus on the everyday life and what makes me a good person. And he's well on his way to being the celebrity, so people will listen to his message as he talks about something other than the afterlife. So, <clears throat> I talked about the secretum before, mm-hmm. which he starts writing around about this time. About 1342, he starts writing the secretum when he was 38. This is um, his dialogue with St. Augustine. Right. Which was kind of his private diary. He worked on it for 40 years. I've read a bit of it, and it's really, really fucking fascinating. Um, have you read any of it? No, not the secretum. No. Um, Let me just uh, pull it out. Let me pull it out. (laughs) How many times have I? Okay. Yeah. Um, Dialogue the first. Here we go. St. Augustine. What have you to say, O man of little strength? Of what are you dreaming? For what are you looking? Remember you not you are mortal? Petrarch, yes, I remember it right well, and a shudder comes upon me every time that remembrance rises in my breast. St. Augustine, 
May you indeed remember as you say and take heed for yourself. You will spare me much trouble by doing so. For there can be no doubt that to recollect one's misery and to practice frequent meditation on death is the surest aid in scorning the seductions of this world and in ordering the soul amid its storms and tempests, if only such meditation be not superficial, but sink into the bones and marrow of the heart. Yet I am greatly afraid lest that happen in your case, which I have seen in so many others, and you be found deceiving your own self. Petrarch, in what way do you mean, for I do not clearly understand the drift of your remarks? St. Augustine. O race of mortal men, this it is that above all makes me astonished and fearful for you, when I behold you, of your own will, clinging to your miseries, pretending that you do not know the peril hanging over your heads, and if one bring it under your very eyes, you try to thrust it from your sight and put it afar off. Petrarch, in what way are we so mad? St. Augustine. Do you suppose that there is any living man so unreasonable that if he found himself stricken with a dangerous ailment, he would not anxiously desire to regain the blessing of health? Petrarch, I do not suppose such a case has ever been heard of. Augustine. And do you think if one wished for a thing with all one's soul, one would be so idle and careless as not to use all possible means to obtain what one desired? Petrarch. No one, I think, would be so foolish. Augustine. If we are agreed on these two points, so we ought also to agree on a third. Petrarch, what is the third point? Augustine, it is this, that just as he who by deep meditation has discovered he is miserable will ardently wish to be so no more, and as he who has formed this wish will seek to have it realized, so he who seeks will be able to reach what he wishes. It is clear that the third step depends on the second as the second on the first. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the first should be, as it were, a root of salvation in man's heart. Now you mortal men, and you yourself with all your power of mind, keep doing your best by all the pleasures of the world to pull up this saving root out of your hearts, which, as I said, fills me with horror and wonder. With justice, therefore, you are punished by the loss of this root of salvation and the consequent loss of all the rest. Mm. Petrarch. I foresee this complaint you bring is likely to be lengthy and take many words to develop it. Would you mind, therefore, postponing it to another occasion? And that I may travel more surely to your conclusion, may we send a little more time over the premises? Augustine, I must concede something to your slowness of mind, so please stop me at any point where you wish. Damn. Oh, God, it's like doing a podcast with you. (laughs) Petrarch, well, if I must speak for myself, I do not follow your chain of reasoning. Augustine, what possible obscurity is there in it? What are you in doubt about now? Petrarch, I believe there is a multitude of things for which we ardently long, which we seek for with all our energy, but which nevertheless, however diligent we are, we never have obtained and never shall. And it goes on and on and on. So it's like he's sitting down, having a beer. This is right. a podcast, basically. Right. He's, he's, this is an early podcast. He's sitting down, <laughs> having a beer with St. Augustine. And just debating, I mean, it starts off as I interpret it, Augustine, you know, him, Petrarch, writing as Augustine saying, you know, you kind of lost your way, son. You're, you know, you're a very smart chap, but you're not really focusing on the right things, which is about the fate of your immortal soul. Mm -hmm. And Petrarch going, writing as himself, and this guy, hey, hold on a minute there, Sonny Jim. Uh, You know, I think there's probably other things here. I think, 
you're being a little bit one-sided. So he's having this debate. Now, this is in the classic style of uh, Plato's mm-hmm. writings of Socrates's debate. The Socratic method is what he's doing here. And, right. you know, Cicero's own writings of uh, Scipio and and creating these fake debates between people uh, talking about, you know, big issues. So he's he's doing one of this is an original style. He's borrowed this from the Greeks and the Romans, um, but it's fascinating, and uh, I really enjoyed. I read like a hundred and fifty pages of this over this over wow. the weekend. That's insane, and really enjoyed. I really enjoyed it. Like it, it, it the style. They get into the worthiness of love. Augustine's trying to tell him that you know loving somebody, particularly somebody he can't procreate with is a waste of energy and he's going no Jeez. i don't think it is i think god wanted me to love like this um because you know there's a lot of holiness in it and you know it's a beautiful thing and i refuse to be told it's a bad thing so he's debating with himself right. but as you said this sort of um not long after this um he uh, says he's free of sin. So he starts writing this in 1342, and then in 1343, he says he became free of sin. And what happened in 1343, Ray? 1343? Uh, I don't know. What? what? Well, he, his oh, daughter oh. was born. Okay. So during this period, he's had two illegitimate children, a son and a daughter, right. from some woman or, or two that he knocked up and had illegitimate children with. We don't know who they were. He doesn't tell us. But uh, he's in love with Laura and he's seeking fame and fortune. But on the side, he's getting his dick wet. Right. Which is because the what's the of, point? That's right. Yeah. What's the point of being famous if you're not? <laughs> Laura's not giving it up. No, so he's got to get his him. dick wet somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Now, it's not just Augustine he's writing to his Homer, Cicero, Livy, these famous guys from the great days of antiquity he writes to like this, but Augustine is the big one that he did for 40 years. But he's still, he's banging somebody or multiple somebodies, having illegitimate children. Now, he's still technically in the minor orders of the church, (laughs) which means he's still technically supposed to be celibate. Ever since the Second Lateran Council in 1139, uh, he's, you know, people of the major and minor orders are supposed to not get their dicks wet. But if he um, didn't, he'd be the only one. Almost the only one. Yeah, at least he was, you know, not doing it with little boys. Right. That's That was his position. Listen, yeah, at yeah. least I'm doing it with a woman. <laughs> uh, so shut the fuck up. Um, um, I'm sorry. I just, I just wanted to give some backstory to 1342, but I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay, go okay. for it. So just, since since yeah. since we're at thirteen forty two, I just wanted to do some backstory and uh, finish up with uh, Robert, King of Naples. So in thirteen forty two, there's a new pope elected, Clement the sixth. So Petrarch feels the need to return to Avignon to give him his compliments, and in return, because Petrarch is now, like you said, this rock star, he is given income from ecclesiastical properties. So he is being supported as a writer. So hey, that, and, and he's going to get even more awards uh, uh, in a couple of years. Um, so one year after the new pope is elected, uh, 1343, uh, Robert, King of Naples, has died. His granddaughter, Joanna I, is now on the throne. She controls, she controls Provence and Avignon, and she is married to her cousin, Andrew, who is the son of the king of Hungary. Now, Andrew wanted to be king in his own right, and he is not shy in making this wish known, but Joanna's lover, 
Louis of Taranto kills him, and then he marries Joanna, which of course means the royal shit really hits the fan. So the dead Andrew's brother, another Louis, who is now on the throne of Hungary, takes his army into Italy for revenge, and he takes Naples in 1348. Joanna runs to Avignon, and she sells the city, her city, to the Pope for 80,000 florins, about $2.5 million today. Believe it or not, the Pope sides with Joanna, and he orders Louis back to Hungary, but he is ignored. Uh, however, the Black Death comes, and it ravages his army, so he has to leave anyway. Joanna is back on her throne, but she forgot she sold a part of it to the Pope. Um, so Pope Urban later on is going to push her off the, the throne. She is going to be captured and killed. But the but the point is, uh, Robert's glorious, Robert uh, of Naples, his glorious reign comes to an end. And his um, all of his work in some ways comes to nothing because it's going to end up being fought over by the Pope and other powers as well. But while he was in charge, like we said, he spent a lot of money on art and literature, and Petrarch was only there during the first year of Joanna's reign, so he misses all the drama. He's back to traveling. He's back to searching for lost manuscripts. He goes to Parma in northern Italy. He goes to Bologna, a little bit south of that. In 1345, he goes to Verona, back to the north, but not as far as as, uh, Parma, and it's in Fair Verona in a church library where he makes a fantastical discovery. Yeah, so in Verona, uh, by the way, I I just want to go back a step, though, when he's uh, trying to, uh, he's in Parma, uh, because he enjoys a good chicken Parma. Right, who does That's why he kept going to Parma, yeah, but there there was a siege uh, of Parma by the Milanese and Mantuan troops, which forced him to get out (laughs) of Parma. He He was hoping to stay there. He was hoping to live there, but he had to get out because there was, again, one of these endless sieges that happened in Italy during this period. That's what um, forced him to go to Verona. Turns out it was a good thing because there in the Cathedral Library, he discovered the first 16 books of Cicero's letters to Atticus uh, and also his letters to Quintus and Brutus. Yeah. Um, Now, again, as, as I think I talked about in earlier shows, so... Just touching on this again, so what would happen in the Middle Ages is monasteries uh, and cathedrals had scriptorums, places where monks would just write books, make copies, manual copies of books. And then they had their great libraries where they collected these books, some of which had been there for centuries or millennia even, sitting in these dusty musty, cold, damp libraries. Mm-hmm. And um, some books got copied, you know, bo- books written on parchment, skins, or on uh, um, uh, 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 papyrus, mm-hmm. um, had a shelf life like like paper does. You had to make copies of them on a regular basis, at least every hundred years or so, if you wanted to have a good copy of that book, you need to make a copy of it. Um, and that was labor intensive and quite expensive, particularly as the papyrus industry disappeared during the middle ages, people stopped growing it. Mm. And they, they started to use parchment, dried animal skins um, that had to be cleaned and dried and wow. prepared. It was a 
very lengthy process. Sometimes they'd take old books written on parchment and just scrape the ink off them and uh, clean them, like bleach them, and then start again and write over the top of them. And a lot of classics, uh, including lots of works by people like Cicero, disappeared because these these monks would go, well, no one's going to ever fucking read that again, so let's just <laughs> clean it and um, <clears throat> write over the top of it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but from time to time, books survived that were old and in fragile condition, and Petrarch was going around looking for those. Yeah. And then he would personally transcribed them as he did with these letters of Cicero. Wow. So he they wouldn't let him take their copy. He goes, well, do you mind if I sit here for six months <laughs> right. and just make my own copy? And they go, he goes, where's the photocopy machine? And they go, oh, it's, it hasn't been invented yet. And he's like, fucking what? Well, what about the printing press? No, sorry. He, he printing told press them, won't be invented for 200 years, son. He told them the story about his teacher. So then he goes, which was a mistake borrowing his work and he goes can I borrow these and he's like fuck no so he goes okay can I sit here and re- and record it so yeah but again that's some serious dedication for a celebrity to sit down and to copy something out it must be important to him yeah so he would he copied those then he'd take them away and get more copies made of them and he would publish them and get them out there and people would buy a copy and then publish their own copies it also, like reading Cicero's collected letters, um, prompted him to start thinking about putting together his own collection of letters before he died in the style of Cicero. Uh, yeah. So in 1346, uh, Pope Clement VI makes him a canon at Parma. Nice. So a higher order. So he's not just in the minor orders now, he's up into the higher orders. And then a couple of years later, he's made an archdeacon. Right. Now, all of these come with a stipend. Uh, you know, the church would take money from the poor and then <laughs> use it to give to Petrarch uh, and, you know, build palaces for themselves. Things and haven't pay changed. Off their mistresses and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Exactly. So uh, he's got a new source of income now, which probably replaces the one he lost when Robert, the King of Naples, died. Yeah. But speaking of that, you talked about Joanna. Mm hmm. Um, uh, she gets caught up in what happens next. So around about this time, another guy who wants to make Rome great again uh, comes on the scene, the politician and reformer Cola di Rienzo, a.k.a. Rienzi, as he's often called. Uh, before we go into him, I just wanted to give a little side story on Verona. I found this interesting. So... Verona, at the time of uh, Petrarch's visit, was a major Italian power, and through her trade, she actually rivaled Venice. And there's still a Roman theater that's used for operas there today. But the point is, the Scalia family ruled uh, Verona for many years. They did a pretty good job. There's uh, churches that there's a church, uh, Saint Anastasia, that's there that was uh, built in uh, 1280. But then, and around this time, an unknown copyists. Uh, found the lost poems of Catullus, Verona's most famous son. And it was here that the Guelph family, the Capelitti, who were fighting the Ghibelline Motecci, who would later become uh, Shakespeare's Capulets and Montagues. And again, Dante was uh, patronized by Verona. Um, So 
again, these these city states are just going at each other. They have their money. They're they're focused on arts. They're fighting each other. Fortunes are lost, but it's just a part of what they do. They're very proud of their city state, and they try to conquer the lands around them. So there's, like you were saying earlier, there's constantly going to be wars, and it's going to affect everybody nearby. So back to Rienzi. Mm-hmm. So. Rienzi was born in Rome of humble origins. Um, he claimed to be the son of Henry VII, the Holy Roman Emperor, but yeah. in fact his parents were a washerwoman and a tavern keeper. I love that expression. Lorenzo Gabrini. Washerwoman. washerwoman. Yeah, just it's uh, hot. Yeah. 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 He's going to bring down the big During, guys. Yeah. Yeah, like Petrarch during his Ruth, his Ruth, yeah, his youth, he read everything he could about ancient Rome. He was obsessed with mm-hmm. ancient Rome. And like Petrarch, he wanted to make Rome great again. <laughs> now, as we've mentioned several times, during the, by the middle of the 14th century, Rome had fallen on very hard times. The popes had abandoned it. Everyone had abandoned it. Um, it was officially still controlled by the popes since the donation of Pepin. But, uh, you know, they didn't really give a fuck. They, right. they, they'd been in Avignon, even Avignon, but even before then, they hadn't really been in a make Rome great state of mind. The whole <laughs> idea of, of uh, restoring uh, wow. or building new fabulous churches yeah. and all that kind of stuff wasn't really a thing in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, well, anywhere in the Middle Ages, but particularly Rome. And, I mean, in Byzantine, the, the Hagia Sophia and that sort right. of thing, the Byzantine Empire. But in Italy, not a thing. So um, at its height, the papal states that I've mentioned before started with the donation of Pepin, sort of had spread. At its height, they covered most of the Italian regions of Lazio, which includes Rome, uh, Marche, Umbria, and Romania, and mm. portions of Emilia. Mm. So quite a large area um, where the popes had temporal power as well as spiritual power. As I said in an earlier episode, they were effectively kings. They had armies. They, they collected taxes. They were basically kings that also claimed to be spiritual leaders. Right. But from 1305 to 1378, uh, they were based in Avignon, being controlled by the French kings. And during this time, Avignon itself was added to the papal states and it remained a papal possession for 400 years, even after the popes returned to Rome until the French Revolution when they seized Avignon and took it back from the popes. But during the Avignon papacy, uh, these local warlords, chieftains, uh, Colonna, the Orsini, other names you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. took advantage of the absence of the popes and basically went to war for control of Rome and pretty much uh, goes back to what it was like in Julius Caesar's day, right? Right. These (laughs) these warlords fighting over control of Rome. In this case, they they all sort of acknowledged the the papacy as their their overlords. Mm -hmm. They were all declared vicars of the church, but... In, in reality, yeah. they were fighting for supremacy for 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 decades and centuries, actually, uh, in one form or another. These guys were fighting over control of Rome. And Petrarch, as you mentioned before, had been very close to the Colonna family for mm-hmm. decades. They, at this stage, they'd produced several cardinals. Uh, they were a rich Italian noble family, big fans of Petrarch. He'd lived at their palace for quite a long time. Yeah. 
Uh, but he publicly supports Rienzi because Rienzi says he's going to drain the swamp, build a wall, and restore Rome to greatness. Now, Petrarch met Rienzo in 1343, and Rienzo, like Petrarch, begged the Pope to come back to Rome to take it over, and Clement... You know, gave him some money. Here's some money. Go see what you can do or whatever. So, so uh, Rienzo is walking around in a white toga. He's trying to speak like the Gracchi brothers and Cicero. And he's using the ancient Roman ruins to inspire the people. And he says, look, Rome could be great again if you take up your arms. And fuck me if the people don't. So on May 20th, 1347... While a representative of Pope Clement is there, uh, this army of people rise up. The senators protest, but they're kicked out or encouraged to leave, and they go to their country villas. And Rienzo is now in charge. He says he's inspired by the authority of Jesus Christ. So this incredible event, like you said, this very this Kelowna power base comes to an end. They're all kicked out, and now he's got to make good on his promise. And so, like you said, he at first he does well. He checks profiteering. He gathers up surplus corn for the needy. He drains the swamps, which is always popular in Rome. Blind justice is returned to Rome. A monk and a baron are beheaded for the same crime. A former senator is hanged for his crimes. And um, Rienzo solves, or he pacifies, 1,800 aristocratic feuds. Rome is once again prosperous. The people are relatively free. And Petrarch Petrarch cannot praise Rienzo enough to the skies. So again, this is an incredible event has turned around and the common people have taken over this, this, uh, this city, state of Rome. Yeah, he, he gets up uh, 19th of May, 1347, um, on the Capitoline Hill in a suit of armour, um, basically says, I'm in charge now. The nobility see the writing on the wall and run away. He passes new laws, is declared a tribune, is given the powers of a dictator, and as you said, cleaned the place up for a while. Uh, but then <laughs> he starts to go off the rails. So... Does he fall through his own rhetoric? Does he believe his own BS a little too much? That's the sense I got. I think he believed Petrarch's BS. No, I mean, I think he he, he thought he was the new Julius Caesar Ah, or the new Augustus. Right. He's the man for his times. He's the new Napoleon. He's the first Napoleon. He's Napoleon before Napoleon. (laughs) um, He's going to try and unify Italy. To, and then make Rome the head of it again. Oh, and shit. Like, honestly, good plan, right? Yeah. Good plan. Yeah. Uh, Petrarch calls him the new Brutus and Romulus. Ooh. Um, I would have gone with Augustus, but uh, yeah. it turns out Brutus was probably closer to the mark. Yeah. Um, so Rienzi sends letters to all of the cities of Italy asking them to send representatives to Rome for a big powwow on oh, the 1st of August. Shit. Yeah. 1347. Yeah. Some of them did. All right, well, let's go see what this guy's on about. <laughs> right. He sits down, they have a big chat. He goes, we're going to reunify Italy, take control. Rome's going to be the head of it, and I'm going to be at the head of Rome, and it's going to be great. Uh-huh. Um, then, this is where he maybe, like, uh, overstepped it a little <laughs> bit. He summoned Louis IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, and his rival Charles. Oh, shit. Later to become Charles the Fourth, Holy Roman Emperor, to Rome, so he could pronounce judgment on the future of Italy. 
Listen, get you get your skinny white Roman emperor asses <laughs> to Italy ass, right. and, and have and listen to what I'm about to drop on you bitches. Right. Now, now he did have it, like you said, he did have a knighthood bestowed on him, and he went to the Saint John Lateran and he bathed in the basin where supposedly Constantine himself washed away his paganism. And his sins. So he's anointed. He's been promoted. He's got the people on his side. And I think he's getting, you know, a little too heady because Florence, uh, Venice, Milan, very powerful, rich city-states are not going along with this. They are not happy. It's actually where Constantine washed the smell of his wife (laughs) off him after he had her murdered. (laughs) Same thing. I can still smell her. Now... Of course, uh, Louis, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Charles both ignored his demands that they come to Rome. Yeah. And, of course, most of the cities of Italy ignored him as well, as well except Naples. Oh. Whereas you said, the 15-year-old Joanna was queen, oh. but she was fighting with uh, uh, Robert's nephew, Louis I of Hungary, her brother-in-law, mm-hmm. who was also trying to take the throne of Naples, and both of them wanted Rienzi's support. So they're the only people that are giving him any attention. Right. Um, but then he's trying to rebuild it, and how do you, when you rebuild stuff, you need money. How do you get money? You tax the people. Oh, so uh, he's taxing the people. People aren't happy about that. He's made enemies of the Pope because he said, sorry, you don't run Rome anymore. This is now mine. You can come back, but I'm running it. The people are in control. Oh, and like any revolutionary, like the, the religious and the kings are going to turn on you. A bit like the Bolshevik revolution too. I mean, they not only had to deal with the czars and the, the white Russians fighting them for trying to overthrow the the monarchy, but then they had the British and the Americans trying to fight with them as well. Same as Napoleon had to fight off all the monarchs of Europe when he tried to stabilise the French Revolution. Same thing here with Rienzi. Um, Not to mention the local chieftains, like the Orsini and the Colonna. They're not happy about this either. So they're all coming at him. He's in their sights. In October, Pope Clement gave power to a legate to depose Rienzi and bring him to trial. Oh, shit. All right. Yeah, I know that in October, Clement said, step down or just focus on secular affairs. And from what I, from what I read, um, Rienzo backs down, but the Cl- Clement is still not happy. And on December 3rd, publishes a bull against him. Yeah, but before that, uh-huh. um, when Clement turns on him, some of these uh, local barons that have been exiled gather together some troops. Right. And they start attacking Rienzi's troops in and around Rome. Rienzo called out to Louis of Hungary uh, and said, listen, if you want my support, you need to come and help me. Now we're like, fuck, bitch, I thought you were going to support us, but okay. <laughs> so they send some troops to support him. On the 20th of November... Oh. Um, he is able to defeat the nobility at the Battle of Porta San Lorenzo. Mm. But then, as you say, the Pope issued a papal bull against him, denounced him as a criminal, a pagan, and a heretic. Damn. And the nobles raised another army. 
Yeah, and then and then something scares him um, on the fifteenth of December. Some breakout um, in Rome, and he basically gets the fuck out of Dodge and runs away. He goes to Naples. Uh, spent over two years nearby in a monastery, mm-hmm. um, hiding basically. And then in 1350, he goes to Prague and throws himself on the, you know, the, on the protection of the Emperor Charles the Fourth. Yeah, denounced the temporal power of the Pope, implored the Emperor to come and help deliver. Italy, um, and Charles said, what a fabulous idea, but I don't like you. And so he threw him in prison and then handed him over to Pope Clement. With friends like that, you don't need enemies. (laughs) Now, I had read that um, uh, Rienzo is able to return eventually to Avignon, and he asked for Petrarch. Petrarch writes an appeal to the people of Rome to protect him. And he's like, you know, he did give you freedom for a little while. And even Petrarch is calling on Jesus to help. He writes, to the Roman people, invincible conquerors of nations, your former tribune is now a captive in the power of strangers, a sad spectacle indeed. And then he asks God for help. What dost thou, O Christ, ineffable and incorruptible judge of all? Where are thine eyes with which thou art wont to scatter the clouds of human misery? Why dost thou not, with thy forked lightning, put an end to this unholy trial? But believe it or not, no lightning shows up to strike down Renzo's enemies. Yeah, what the fuck, Jesus? What are you doing? <laughs> Are you busy? Should I make an appointment? But no, he, he gets no help from the from the heavens. Yeah, when you say um, Rienzi was able to return to Avignon, he was taken there in Ta- chains right. to Avignon. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I kind of it was a very long story, and I, I wasn't sure if we were going to cut cover all of it, so I cut to the chase. So I got that wrong. Where he was. Tried by three cardinals and sentenced to death. Well, I wasn't sure how much because this is like way out the story, so I wasn't sure how much we were going to to cover. Sometimes you high level it, and I took a chance. No, this is this is the story. I All mean, right, cool. So he's sentenced to death. Patriarch um, appeals for uh, clemency and his release, but um, before I mean, he doesn't get that. But then Clement dies. Mm. in uh, December uh, 1352. And his successor, Pope Innocent VI, uh, isn't a big fan of these, uh, the local sort of aristocracy around Ah, Rome either. And he sees Rienzi as being a possible tool to help him fight them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this is is important stuff because the Renaissance is in large part about wars between kings and popes and the people. right. And this is, you know, this is part of that. So anyway, the Pope releases him, uh, gives him the title of a senator, sends him back to Italy uh, with some mercenary troops and says, you know, go and make Rome great again. Uh, I'm I'm personally not going to go back there, but uh, you should totally go back there. I wish you the best. Yeah, totally go back there and, you know, fight all the bad guys for me. Right. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> Go and kill them all in the name of Jesus. Right. Which he does. So he enters Rome, Rienzi again in August of 1354, um, quickly 
you know, regains his position of power, but doesn't last very long. Um, there's, yeah, he seizes some soldier of fortune called Giovanni Morreale, who's put to death. He becomes cruel, yeah. uh, apparently, the second time around. Just seems to have, I don't know, lost his uh, sense of righteousness mm-hmm. and just is like, okay, maybe I was too nice the first time around. <laughs> Fuck all your all. Tighten it up. Yeah. Uh, loses the favour of the people, including Pate, uh, Petrarch. Right. Um, anyway, uh, basically a riot breaks out. He uh, stands up on his balcony uh, to try and calm the troops. Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah, we're calm. And they set the building on fire. <laughs> they calmly set it on fire. He tries to escape in a disguise and is caught by the mob and murdered. And then Petrarch writes uh, uh, one of his letters where he says, what? Rienzi never heard of him. Don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> no. Are you no, sure you got says, the right Petrarch? Oh, you mean Bob Petrarch. <laughs> no, he lives around the way. 1304. No, he says, yeah. um, no, look, I, I, I had big hopes for this guy, but he turned out to be a cunt and... Uh, <laughs> Let's let's never speak of this yeah. again. Right. And then he goes uh, back to Parma where he receives some tragic news. Oh uh, yeah, so um so he believe it or not, um Petrarch has lost the support of the Colonia family. Um he is he, and like you said, he was thinking about joining um Petrarch was thinking about joining him, but he doesn't in Rome because he's losing. He goes to Parma in thirteen forty seven. The Black Death comes again. Yes, this is still around. Many of his friends are killed, including his old love, whether it was Lara or not, the point is the person that he had been writing all those love poems about that launched his career has now passed away. Supposedly on Good Friday, oh, 1348, uh, the 21st anniversary of the first time he saw her, um, she poetic. died. Yeah. yeah. He actually claimed to have uh, a vision that sure. she was dead, and a month later he got a letter from one of his friends saying that indeed she had died at the very moment that he had the vision. Now, on the first episode tonight, you said you were going to read the quote from inside of his Virgil. Were you, were you going to do that now, or because I don't have I was going to do that exactly now, yes. Cool. I apologize. Take it away. No, you're right on the money. Thank you. So uh, uh, he wrote in the flyleaf of his copy of Virgil this entry. Laura, a shining example of virtue in herself, and for many years made known to fame by my poems, first came visibly before my eyes in the season of my early youth, in the year of our Lord, 1327, on the sixth day of the month of April, in the church of St. Clara of Avignon in the morning. And in the same city, on the same sixth day of the same month of April, at the same hour of prime, but in the year 1348, the bright light of her life was taken away from the light of this earth, when I chanced to be dwelling at Verona in unhappy ignorance of my doom. The sorrowful report came to me, however, in a letter from my Lewis, which reached me at Parma on the morning of the 19th day of May in the same year. Her most chaste and most beautiful body was laid to rest in the habitation of the minor friars at evening on the very day of her death. 
Her soul, I am persuaded, has returned, in the words that Seneca uses of Africanus, to the heaven which was its home. I have thought good to write this note, with a kind of bitter sweetness, as a painful reminder of my sorrow, and have chosen this place for it, as one which comes constantly under my eyes, reckoning as I do that there ought to be nothing to give me further pleasure in this life and that by frequent looking on these words and by computing the swiftness of life's flight, I may be admonished that now, with the breaking of my strongest chain, it is time to flee out of Babylon. And this, by the prevention of God's grace, will be easy for me when I consider with insight and resolution my past life's idle cares, the emptiness of its hopes and its extraordinary issues. Wow. And so we mentioned in the earlier episodes, scholars believe that she really did exist as a woman, if not, uh, if her name wasn't Laura. And, and this is one of the major pieces of evidence for that. Hard to imagine he would have written something like that if she was uh, just an imaginary muse that he had created. Yeah. So it's... 1347, his love is gone, many of his friends are gone, and of course they died horrible deaths with the, with the Black Death. The next year, 1348, he gets another invitation from Padua, and you've got to get the sense that he was probably more than happy to go to leave all this behind. So again, his traveling is, is not over, his adventures are not over, and his looking for lost manuscripts certainly is not over. Yeah, but I just wanted to touch on the Black Death yeah. again. Um, like this time around, it's one of the most devastating uh, episodes in human history. Right. It's estimated that between 75 to 200 million people died from the Black Death between 1347 and 1351. Damn! That's fucking Thanos numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they just called it Thanos. Yeah, um, damn, seventy five to two hundred million people in I, a space of four years. That's I can't incredible. comprehend. I can. Uh, what do you do with the bodies? I mean, how do you? I wow, can't even just comprehend. pile them up in the streets. Now, Boccaccio, one of the other uh, early founders of the Renaissance and a friend of Petrarch's, which we'll get to. He wrote about it, uh, the Black Death. He wrote, In men and women alike, it first betrayed itself by the emergence of certain tumours in the groin or armpits, mm -hmm. some of which grew as large as a common apple, others as an egg. From the two said parts of the body, this deadly gavocciolo, which was their word for like a, a bubo or a, a swelling, which is why it's called the bubonic plague. Right soon began to propagate and spread itself in all directions indifferently, after which the form of the malady began to change, black spots or livid making their appearance in many cases on the arm or the thigh or elsewhere, now few and large, now minute and numerous. As the gaviacholo, gavacciolo had been and still was an infallible token of approaching death, such also were these spots on whomsoever they showed themselves." Now, it's believed that the Black Death originated somewhere in Central Asia, travelled along the Silk Road, reaching the Crimea in 1343. From there, it was carried by Oriental rat fleas living on black rats, which 
jumped on merchant ships and that way spread throughout the Mediterranean and Europe. But, of course, they didn't know that back then. Mm -hmm. One of the consequences of the Dark Ages was medical knowledge had stagnated. Oh, shit. The most most authoritative account at the time on the cause of the Black Death came from a medical faculty in Paris, which wrote a report to the King of France that blamed the heavens in the form of a conjunction of three planets in 1345, which caused a great pestilence in the air. Sure. Uh, and this uh, this version travelled throughout Europe. So um, that was it. Bad air because the three planets were in conjunction. I'm they- sorry. That's why you've got the plague. Rats? They- what are you talking about, rats? Rats are great. More rats is what you need. They'll eat the bad air. <laughs> Did we? Do we know which three planets were to blame? It doesn't matter. No, no, okay. I don't know the three planets. Sorry, my research didn't go that deep. <laughs> now, the Black Death is estimated to have killed between thirty and sixty percent of Europe's Europe's total population. Uh, It's estimated it may have reduced the world's population from 450 million down to 350 million in the 14th century. And it took the world 200 years to recover to its previous level. Now, we've, we've touched on this in our previous episodes, but when you have 100 million people out of a total population of, you know, uh, 200, 300 million people mm-hmm. gone in four years in Europe, when half your population disappears in four years, men, women, and children, right? like the impact that must have on your economy. Yeah. We, we've talked about like uh, Russia in our Cold War show. Russia, Soviet Union in World War II, losing 20 million people mm-hmm. out of a total of like nigh on 200 million, 10%, and the impact that that had on their uh, oh, economy, yeah. particularly right. mostly men. Um, <clears throat> but imagine this, just half the population gone. As you said, it's Thanos-level shit, man. Yeah. I mean, I'd be afraid to come out of my house. I don't want to talk to anybody. Just stay in your house with the rats. Right. <laughs> and you're praying. And you're Pit on your rats. knees and you're praying. Please, God, don't yeah. take me. Don't don't take me. I mean, there are other people in this room. Don't take me. Yeah, please kill my wife and children before you take me, <laughs> oh, Lord. I can f- marry someone else and churn out more right. kids. Yeah. <clears throat> I still got it where it counts. So uh, yeah. take them. Yeah. My wife doesn't have any teeth left, so she's not going to be much good on the market if I die, let's be honest. And, you know, I kept jabbing my lance through a clitoris because I thought that's what, how you did it. So right. she's all fucked up down there too, yeah, quite honestly. So. Live and learn. She's had tw- 12 kids, you know, it's... Uh, it's a bit, bit floppy down down no. there. I don't know anyone else is going to want to just to do get over. up in that. What, what, what's the Mind Christian term for do over? Half yeah. the women have just disappeared, so beggars can't be choosers. Right. Quite frankly, in, yeah. uh, I guess I'm lucky she's black. still alive. Yeah. Well, or, or if she's not, if I die, right, the men that survive will be thinking, well, you know, 
Beggars can't be choosers, quite frankly. Everyone's dead. Uh, take oh it where you can get it. God. No, but, but, but seriously, I mean, just complete fear, ignorance, panic, devastation. You have no idea where this, and if you, and if it, you do believe that it's the heavens, I mean, just, oh, just guilt upon death. I mean, can it get any worse for these people? Rich, poor, doesn't matter. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of um, Petrarch's uh, friends and family, his son, uh, uh, Laura, Cardinal oh. Colonna, die from the Black Death. Um, he seems to think, you know, his life is over. In 350, he starts making this formal collection of his own letters mm-hmm. to survive him after his death, inspired by Cicero's letters to to uh, Atticus. Uh, Petrarch calls his letters the familiaris. Now, 1350 was a year of jubilee, which uh, made him go back to Rome. Do you understand what jubilee is, Ray? Is it a big party? Is it a big celebration? Are they celebrating just the fact that they're fucking still alive? I have no idea. Yeah, well, that, that'll be part of it. Now, in Judaism and Christianity, the concept of the Jubilee is a special year of remission of sins and universal pardon. Ah. It's just God went, you know what? This year ends in a zero. Um, <laughs> I fucking, everyone gets a clean bill of slate. You're all, you're all good. Yeah. And everyone went, hold on. Well, what was the point of Jesus dying if you could just like, just give us the old. Good you know, point. Wink and a nod. <laughs> Why are we doing all of this? He goes, don't, it's, it's complicated. Don't question. I, exactly. I've changed my views on remission of sins since sure. then. It's a long time. You know, I've thought about it. I'm like, I don't need human sacrifices anymore. Yeah. I appreciate uh, it. But, just, uh, just a wink and a nod will be enough. Um, in the book of Leviticus, a jubilee year is mentioned to occur every 50th year. Right. When slaves and prisoners would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be manifest to all. Sure. That'd be awesome. So if you're a slave, you're just hanging on. <laughs> Come on, 50. Come on, 50. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be freed. But with the Christians, they weren't that generous. It was mostly just about a pilgrimage to a sacred site. There would be a little bit of sin remission if you did the right things. Right. In Western Christianity, the tradition only dates to the year 1300 when Pope Bonifaci VIII, <laughs> uh, the guy that was going to war with Philip IV, right. uh, convoked the Jubilee, a holy year, said they were going to have them uh, every hundred years after that. But then they, but I think Petrarch, in fact, went, eh, let's do them every 50 later on. And they said, oh, fuck it. Okay. Because yeah. he goes, I'm not going to be around 100 years from now. Yeah. I, want, I want a Jubilee. Yeah. Oh, like, just for you, Petrarch. We'll do one in 1350. Um, but on, uh, in 1300, Bonifaci published the bull habet fila relatio, which said that people would get the most full and pardon of all their sins. If they did certain things. So you had to uh, go to Rome, right. confess your sins, buy and then visit the... Right. Yeah, buy a bobblehead, <laughs> get a T-shirt, and then visit the basilicas of St. Peter and St. Paul in Rome every day uh, for 15 days if you're a visitor, 30 days if you are an inhabitant of Rome. 
and buy something from the gift shops every day. <laughs> On your way out. Is that possible for all these people to show up there every day for 15 days? I mean, the, the sheer numbers alone. But I guess that's their problem. Well, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. It wasn't so hard in 1350 because half of them were dead. <laughs> Good point. Touche. Mm. No pun intended. So he went back to Rome, Petrarch. On his way back, he stopped in uh, – no, sorry, on his way there, he stopped in Florence – Mm-hmm. Uh, first time to Florence, as far as I know, um, where he made some new friends, and one of those was Giovanni Boccaccio. Yeah. Um, now, Boccaccio, we'll probably talk about in, in maybe our next episode, I guess. He's mm-hmm. famous for writing the Decameron story that predicted me. Um, wow. And another book on famous women. Um, the Decameron is a collection of a hundred tales told by a group of seven young women and three young men. So mm-hmm. my favorite, my favorite right. kind of orgy. Good numbers, right? They're hiding uh, in a villa outside of Florence to escape the Black Death, mm-hmm. and um, they uh, tell a bunch of stories, mostly about predicting the coming of the Cameron, um, which is what <laughs> it's called that. Right. Um, and you know, it's pretty yeah. good. I've read it, and I'm like, but, yeah, I, I, I can see, I can see what they're getting yeah. at here. It's, it's, it's got stories, uh, everything from eroticism to uh, tra- tragedy. It's mm. pretty much a document, mm. uh, a life. It's my of, life, buddy. Right. It's my life. Eroticism, <laughs> Tra- tragedy, tra- tragic eroticism. It provides a document <laughs> of life at the of what life was like at the time. So again, yeah. But uh, he's going to rub elbows with another great uh, thinker and writer. I think we'll talk about him in more detail next time. But, yeah, anyway, so he goes to Florence, meets Boccaccio. They end up becoming really good friends and write to each other for the rest of their lives. And then he uh, leaves Rome, goes to Parma, gets there in 1351. Uh, Pope Clement VI is asking him to come back to Avignon. um, And Florence are also trying to get him to come back. They offered him a professorship at the university and the restitution of his father's property. Nice. But Which... he told them both to go fuck themselves, <laughs> and uh, he went back to Vaucluse yeah. in Provence. Yeah, he's got to do some more writing. Yeah. Yeah. Because life is short, right. as we've all learned, because of the Black Death. Damn right. Um, in August, the Pope offers him a, a bishopric. Um <laughs> How would you like this bishop's prick? <laughs> Been there. Uh, okay, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very interested. <laughs> no, he, turn, he turned turned down the job of a bishop from the Pope because, again, he wants to focus on writing. And yeah. um, he also wrote a series of violent letters against the Curia around about this period. Um, basically, he's, you know, he still thinks Avignon is corrupt. The papal court is corrupt. Right. But yep. – yeah. He's he's still a, he's still a very religious man, and he's also anti-science, which I found interesting. He um, wrote a thing saying, "You know what? Studying animals doesn't help us understand people. Studying animals in nature doesn't help us understand people. Uh, it's a waste of time. Don't mm. study philosophy. Don't study people. Just study right. the human condition and love and poetry." <laughs> so, as we've said many times, he straddles both ages: the medieval right. and the modern. 
Well, he pisses off um, with the Pope Clement the Sixth is sick, uh, but he's been telling his friends to stay away from doctors. I don't know how much detail you want to go to into. So he pisses off the doctors. He pisses off the priests. He gets a threat of excommunication by Pope Innocent the Sixth for being a necromancer. Um, but a cardinal steps in and saves him. And like you said, he is now even more sick of Avignon. So he goes to visit his monk brother and he's thinking maybe, maybe the monastery is the way to go so I can get away from all this complications, but that's not going to work because he's going to get an invitation, uh, to go to Milan there. It's a dictatorship, but at least they're honest about it. So he says, yes, please. He gets the hell out of Avignon and he goes into Milan. I don't know if you want to stop now, but the family Visconti or has been ruling Milan for some time. And again, they've got a ton of money. They're focused on art and uh, sculptures and things like that. And they too want to support this famous writer. Yeah, I think we'll just skip to the end, man, since oh, we're oh, okay. at an hour 20. Um, he dies, basically. Um, there's oh, no other major points. There's just he's, you know, he's the most famous man of his age. They're all fighting over him. Um, but he basically retires to a house that he built near Padua in a place called Aqua. In 1370, he's still writing. He's working on Africa. He's working on his canzonieri uh-huh. uh, up until just before that point. And he dies on the night of yeah. July 18th, uh, 1374. He rose. Yeah, sorry. Ceremonially buried beside the church of Aqua. Yeah. So he, he had previously written, I desired that, that death find me ready and writing, or if it please Christ, praying and in tears and someone comes into it's his 70th birthday someone comes in to find him they think he's sleeping over a book when he's actually dead a couple of months later boccaccio dies and uh, between the two of them will durant writes for 50 for 50 years now italy will lie fallow till the seeds that these men have planted would come to flower Yeah, indeed. Uh, So let's wrap up Petrarch. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was his, I guess his major contribution to the Renaissance uh, was his love for sort of the glory of the ancient days of Rome, Mm -hmm. uh, for the, the, the study of the human condition, for the reinvention of a more direct, personal, angst-ridden form of love poetry. He's the first tourist, the first modern man. Mountain climber. Uh, he he re- rediscovered major works by particularly people like Cicero right. and used his popularity as the world's most famous poet to get other people to pay attention to the ancient writers, the quality of the Latin and what they were writing about and, and, and the focus of on the human condition of life today exactly. Uh, instead of just thinking about what happens when you die, which is the point yeah. of humanism. Now, uh, he'd had a plan for a long time to have his library kept together after his death, he did deals with various people. It basically didn't uh, work out. Yeah. He had a massive collection. It's estimated that he probably had two hundred books wow. um, from the class from the ancients uh, when he died. Um, and, you know, he he was going to leave it with the Republic of Venice. 
Um, that kind of f- fell apart. Um, he wanted to, you know, have it as the basis of a library, like the Library of Alexandria. Yeah. It was basically his dream. But um, for some reason, like in 1367, he decided to leave Venice, where he'd been for a while, because the local scholars weren't really interested in his personal library. They were more interested in science in that stage than humanism. Mm-hmm. But he did And after a- he... Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, after you. No, I know. Go ahead and finish your thought. I apologize. I was just going to say that after he died, his library seems to have been dispersed. There are some of his books today in museums in Rome, Paris, London, and the Vatican. Uh, there were books that ended up in uh, Venice, but they were left neglected. Mm. in some back room uh, of a monastery somewhere. Um, No, sorry, at the Palazzo Molina where he had lived. And they just crumbled. Um, They were left there. It was damp. They got moldy. They they sort of melted into shapeless masses. They crumbled. And so a lifetime of work collecting these books uh, mostly was all in vain after he died. Yeah. I had read that he wrote a letter giving his collection to Venice, but that he would have the use of it until his death. But like you said, uh, on his travels, he just happened to be in Padua at the time. Um, And so the person there who was the enemy of Venice was able to get a lot of his library. But yeah, a lot of it's sold off, a lot of it's scattered, and a lot of it's just ignored and disappears over time. Just a a great loss again, which is what the Renaissance was trying to recover. Just a great loss of a life's work trying to find all these uh, lost manuscripts. Well, that's it. Uh, Petrarch, love, human value, uh, fame, ambition. These are the things for which he is called the father of the Renaissance, the father of humanism, the first yeah. modern man. And I think next time we'll start talking about Boccaccio, uh, maybe a little bit about him. I don't know where we'll go after that. Maybe we'll jump over to Poggio Bracciolini, but we'll see where it takes us. Yeah. I hope I hope everyone's enjoyed learning a little bit more about Petrarch. I hope we've been able to humanize him and uh, discuss his, his relevance. Uh, I certainly enjoyed learning a lot oh, more yeah. about him. How about you? Oh, he was incredible. And, and like you said, just to take him out of the history books and make him a living, breathing person, all this traveling, the writing, his experiences, and he was just as vain as anyone else. That was, that was a lot of fun to just really discover who he was.